The word of the Lord this morning is taken from 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. It's not easy being back here. <laughs> so if I have periodic pauses, it may have nothing to do with the text. It's just being back with family again. So, thank you. So, anyway, the word of the Lord. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and and your steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but, but also in power, and in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. And you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. This is the word of the Lord. A quick background for you. We, as I know you all, have just finished a series in, in the book of Philippians, and so it is that if you're walking through the book of Acts, say chapter 16 and 17 and 18, you, you will read the history of the occasion by which Paul wrote his letter to the, to the, to the church in Philippi. And you know that while he was there, the church of Philippi, of course, he'd been in prison, then uh, he was released from prison, and the Philippian jailer came to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, crying out, what must I do to be saved? And, and Paul answers, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. And of course, they go to his house and he and his whole house are baptized. And then uh, and in the text, we realize that, and the next morning, the, the magistrate came and said, you can, you're free to go. So clearly, after he had finished his time there at the household of the Philippian jailer, they all said, well, it's, we're done here. Let's all go back to jail, Right? Because the, 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 the magistrate was there and uh, said, you can go now. And so they're all back. And Paul says, nope, nope, nope. I remember, I'm a Roman citizen. You have to apologize first. You beat me. Right? Magistrate's very nervous, knowing he shouldn't have beat a Roman citizen. Says he takes him in front of everybody, apologizes, and then says, be on your way. So Paul, remember, has been beaten severely. He's bruised. He's got welts all over his body. He's, he, was in, he was in the stocks a good bit of the night. He can't be comfortable. And so he begins his journey westward on the Via Ignatia. It exists today. that connects the, uh, the city of Philippi to the city, or what was Philippi to the city of current day, actually, uh, Thessalonica. He arrives there in Thessalonica, all beat up, bruised, probably looking every bit of a person who's been beat up. And he, he, he goes straight away to the synagogue. And according to Acts 17, he says he, um, they just, he went straight there and he was only there for about three weeks. He said three, three Sabbaths. So he gets there and he shares the gospel. He begins to open up the scripture to them and he says to them, this is the Messiah that you've been looking for. And in fact, he says here, when, even when he opens up the, uh, the, the text back to them, he says, to the church of Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Now, we usually remember, and we all know this, I'm not telling you anything new, but the word Christ is just the Greek word for Messiah. I had a Greek professor who, whenever he translated, he would just read along and translate as he read, and uh, he would say, uh, to God the Father and the Lord Messiah Jesus. That's how we just always translated it. It's the same thing. So here he is, he's talking to a group of Jewish folk in the synagogue, and he's repeating again, this is Messiah Jesus, the Lord, Messiah Jesus. And he walks them through the scripture and points out to them why this is the Christ. He's staying at a fellow's house by the name of Jason, and Jason, uh, and, uh, but, but remember, the, um, the folks there at the, at the church in Thessalonica made, really made up of three categories of people. They were the Jews, they were the converted Greeks, and then um, uh, and those were the two main in the synagogue, and then outside making up the church within the secular Greeks. So he goes into the synagogue, and he starts preaching the gospel, and a synagogue made up of Jews and converted Greeks. And all of a sudden they say, oh, this is not, what we've been following isn't the whole story. We've been reading the Old Testament, the law of the prophets and the writings, the law of the writings of the prophets, and we realize that we've been reading a story that is missing its ending. It's got a beginning, it's got drama, and it promises something is coming at the end, but then the book just ends. And Paul comes up and says, here's the ending of the story. They say, ah. And so they leave the synagogue. Well, you can imagine, you're taking, when you're taking people out of the synagogue, you're actually also taking money. You're taking support. Well, this doesn't go well. And so the Jews that are in the, in the synagogue, they raise up a group of, of unworthy men, as they described, rabble-rousers, and they drag Jason, who was a host to, uh, to Paul and Silas and Timothy, drag them into, uh, before the magistrate there, and they can't find Paul and Silas and Timothy. And they find, they find Joseph, I mean, they find, uh, find Jason, find everybody who's there, taking their money and sending them back home. And in the night, Paul and, and Silas and Timothy have to run. And they continue west. They get to Berea. Things are going well. It's about 45 miles to the west. They get there. Folks in Thessalonica find out that they're there. They send some folks in there. raise trouble again. In the middle of the night, uh, Paul gets shuttled off to, to a boat there on the coast, and he takes a boat south, heads down to Athens, due south. There he talks about the, he meets uh, with the folks there in the Areopagus, and he's there for a time, then heads west and is in Corinth. And after he's in Corinth for a while, Silas and Timothy come south, and he reports on what's going on in Thessalonica. Things are going really well, but there's some problems. And it is this letter that Paul writes in response to that. And so I'm, I'm referring to this as a well-timed letter of encouragement. Can you imagine a preacher comes to your town for three weeks and you abandon everything and everyone that you know for the sake of the gospel? You give up, and you're dragged, and your money's taken away. You lose career, you lose family, you lose social standing, and this person has just disappeared. You haven't seen hide nor hair of him anywhere. He's just gone. Is it a lie? What have you followed? Is this a scam? Itinerant preachers were going through all the time, raising money, and they'd continue on down the road. Have I, have I followed 
this gospel thing in vain because right now I'm suffering. And so Paul writes them. And he begins with a warmth, a statement of warmth. And he's very Pauline about this in that he, as he, as he walks through, he, sometimes he says, because of this and because of this and because of this, therefore that. That's very Pauline. But he also flips, the, flips around sometimes and says, this, 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 because of that. So he says, I remember you. I'm praying for you. I'm encouraged by you. I'm excited for you. Things I have observed because I know certain things. And in, and in, um, and in the text here, um, I'm, we're gonna, we're gonna, when we work through this text, we're going to work, for, we're gonna work backwards, backwards to the front. We're going to start, actually, in verse 4, for we know, brothers. And actually, the, the, um, the ESV here, what they're attempting to do is say, Paul knows certain things. So they've, they've translated it, for we know. But the, the Greek and the, New, and the New American Standard actually is very helpful. It's not as clear as to who is doing the knowing, so the ESV is attempting to clear that up. But what he's saying is, in verse 3, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, knowing, brothers, loved by God that he's chosen you. This is why I'm, I'm encouraged by all these things and remembering all of these things. So, he says, let me tell you about the climax and then uh, I'll tell you how the story is going to end. There's a a pastor, many of you know him, Alistair Begg, and he has a famous little uh, YouTube video on uh, emotion and, and worship. And um, I'm not going to argue about emotion and worship, but to loosely paraphrase him, he, he tells the account of going to a church one day and some far out in California, he's, he's a pastor up in, uh, up in Cleveland. He went out west, and he was excited because all he, could do, all he had to do was follow directions. He didn't have to prepare anything. He just could go sit. And so he went in there, and, and the clock was counting down. It was one of these really large churches. clock was counting down five minutes before the service, service was supposed to start, five, you know, you know, and then four minutes to 59, four minutes to 58. And so as it got closer and closer, he then went and sat down in the, uh, in the, in the sanctuary. And then in three, two, one, right on cue, the band begins to play. They play their opening, opening uh, bit, and the worship leader stands up, and he says, he says to, uh, to everyone, how are y'all feeling this morning. That was his, as Alistair Begg said, his opening gambit. He said, oh, I said, at that point, I could have just, I, I was done. I mean, I could have just, that was good enough for me. I was ready to walk out the door. He says, how am I feeling this morning? If you ask me how I'm feeling this morning, I feel terrible. I, I, I argue with my wife. I couldn't find a parking space. I was late for church. I didn't get along with my children. I kicked the dog, and I don't even have a dog. If you had asked me how I feel this morning, and I told you, you'd wonder whether or not I was actually a Christian. Don't ask me how I feel, he said. Don't start with that. I'm late for church. Maybe my husband or wife has died. I'm desperately lonely. I'm single, and I don't want to be. I'm far from close family and friends, and I feel so far away and forgotten. I've lost my job during COVID, and I'm not able to make ends meet. 
if you've ever been in this situation. I just found out from the doctor that the pregnancy won't go full term, and I feel full of despair. And when we come together for worship with all my junk, with all my depression, with all of my self-centeredness, which I drives me to, I need to be reminded about what I know. My mind and my heart need to be brought under the control of scriptures. That is why what we know is so critical. Immortal, invisible, God only wise, most blessed, most glorious, the ancient of days, Almighty victorious, thy great name we praise. This has to be my starting point. It is the truths of Scripture that fill our minds and fuels our hearts and leads us on. Or praise my soul, the King of heaven, to his feet thy tribute bring. Ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven. Who like me thy praise should sing? Now, now you and I, we have something to sing about. For we've been reminded of truth. You've been been uh, ransomed, you've been healed, you've been restored, you've been forgiven. You're looking away from yourself, you're looking to Christ, and and in this you have something that fuels our praise. And that's exactly what Paul, Silas, and Timothy are doing for his family. He's doing this for his brothers and sisters, the family in Thessalonica, and he reminds them of what they know. He's begun a line of encouragement with them in a very, like I say, in a very Paulian sort of way. And so we're going to start in verse, um, in verse 4 and work our way backward. But I do want to note that he greets them there to note that they are family. With a mixture of a Greek and Hebrew greeting, grace and peace to you. Shalom and peace. Connects these multiple parties, groups that would otherwise have nothing whatsoever to do with each other, but who, as D.A. Carson says, love each other for the sake of Christ. And that's what we are here. We're a family. And we have brothers and sisters who are not in this fellowship, but in fellowship in other churches all around. Brothers and sisters in Christ, maybe with whom we would have nothing whatsoever to do with, but we love them for the sake of Christ. Whether the racial, cultural, economic differences, whatever they are, Paul then goes straight to their hearts, and, he, at, and once he communicates with them all the reasons why he is thankful and encouraged by them, he then proceeds to tell them all the reasons they have to be encouraged, and it's because of what he knows and what they need to make sure they know that he writes this letter. And so, this morning, I want to talk about the, deep, the Father's deep love for us. And what we know about the Father's deep love for us. The Father loves us deeply. And the three uh, points I have for us this morning is that he saves. Father saves. Second is the Father encourages. And thirdly, he works and sustains. I discovered this morning as I was sitting looking over my notes that actually spells sows. I don't know why that's helpful. Maybe he's sewing a tapestry. I don't know. But if it's easy to remember, S-E-W-S, he saves, he encourages, he works, and he sustains. So how deep the Father's love for us that he sustains us. He, first, we, we have in verse 4 that he elects us. His purpose. I've lost my scripture verse. I'm sorry. It says he elects us. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. 
From the very beginning in Genesis, what stood out from all other religions is that we have a God, a single God, a single creator, not, a, not, a, not a, a, an array, a pantheon of gods, but one single creator who created us for a purpose. With, with a pantheon, all these gods, they don't need us. They don't, don't have purpose for us. They have their own needs. And, 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 and with uh, Paul, the polytheistic religions, you spend all your time hopping up and down trying to get the attention of the one God that you needed, whether you needed rain, whether you needed wind, whether you needed sunlight, whatever you needed, you would go after that one God to get his attention. But the, all those gods, they had their own needs. But when, but when God created, he didn't create out of need. He created with purpose. And so when you and I, when we talk through the gospel, Sam Albury, uh, pastor in England, he, he says one of the problems when we're, when we're communicating the gospel to today's generation is that off, oftentimes we start in Genesis 3. There's a problem. There's a God and there's a problem. He says, and so many people, what they need to do is they need to start in Genesis 1. There is a God and you have purpose. He created you and you have value because you've been made in the image of God. You don't have to create your own meaning. You don't have to create your own purpose. You are an image bearer of God. And because of that, you have value because God granted you value. We need to hear that when we're alone and we feel worthless. We feel lost and rejected. God made me. He hasn't forgotten me. From the very beginning, he made a people for himself to delight in, to take pleasure and joy in. Secondly, we have that he sent his son. He says, he says in verse 4 there, he says, He loved God that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you, not only in word but in power and the Holy Spirit with full conviction. And our hope is in the Lord Jesus Christ. We know from, from all of Scripture that he sent his son, the Lord, the Messiah Jesus they sent. And this Messiah Jesus, you have to understand for Paul and the Jews, this is a huge problem. One of the reasons that, that Paul was, was uh, persecuting the Jews was because it was impossible for Jesus to have been the Messiah. Why was it impossible for Jesus to have been the Messiah from a Jewish perspective? Because he suffered and he died. How could God's chosen, God's beloved, suffer and die on a cross of all things? And we, we're so far removed from the cross now in terms of the horror, the absolute horror and, and shame of the cross in that culture. People wouldn't even speak of it. And this Messiah Jesus, one who called himself, the one sent by God, the Father, came he suffered and died on this cross. And for Paul, that was absolutely impossible until the road to Damascus. And, he confr and Jesus confronts him. Uh, the Son of God confronts him. He says, why are you persecuting me? Remember? And, and, so, and so for the first time, Paul, all of the scriptures that Paul hadn't understood, he understood that he was going to be a wonderful counselor, almighty God. But he hadn't understood that he was going to be a suffering servant. Those passages in Isaiah that made no sense to him, all of a sudden, all came together and made sense to him for the first time. Of course, he was crucified, but then he was raised up again, and he was, he was declared righteous. Of course, now all these passages make sense. And so he goes into the synagogue proclaiming that this Jesus had come and died, and he was sent and that God showed his love for us that while we were still sinners, God died for, Christ died for us. It's not just while we were still sinners, but he's actually even stronger than that. 
continues on in verse 10 of, of Romans 5, says, for while we were his enemies, you and I, do you know you're his enemy? Apart from Christ, you're his enemy. Do you know this? And do you know that because you're his enemy, that it required him to come and die for you, and that because he died for you when you embrace him by faith, that you're no longer his enemy, but you're his child. You're his adopted child. You're his beloved. Do you, do you know this? And then we see in verse 5 that God shows his love, that he applies the gospel by the Holy Spirit. He takes his word and applies it with power, a power that can only come from God himself. He applies it in a way that the messenger gets no credit. He applies the living word to dead hearts and miraculously raises a person from the dead, the dead and breathes life into him. And Paul, I'm sure, and Paul, I'm sure, is preaching the gospel to himself here. He's limped into cities and he's been chased out of them. He knows he's not capable of changing hearts, and that's because that's the work of the Holy Spirit. And so he proclaims Christ crucified, foolishness to the wise, and he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he says, I was also with you in weakness and fear and in great trembling. And my message and my preaching were not persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the power of the Spirit and of power so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of mankind, but on the power of God. Paul, over and over again, requests, asks people to pray for him. Pray that I have courage. Pray that I'm wise. Why does anybody ask for prayer for courage? Because you're afraid. Paul was afraid. Paul needed to hear the gospel over and over again. So when he's preaching it out to the others, he's preaching it to himself. Word goes out in power. The word goes out in power. Instead of Spurgeon, right, as he's climbing the stairs, he would say as he's climbing the stairs to, to preach in the pulpit, there is a Holy Spirit, there is a Holy Spirit, there's a Holy Spirit. Okay? Because otherwise we're lost. But sometimes our experience seems to tell us otherwise, doesn't it? I don't feel, always feel the power of God. The, the idea of God can feel so abstract and so far away. For children who in school have to get grades, trying to make friends, being bullied, you can sit and talk to them about God, and they don't want to hear it. We talk to our girls sometimes about situations, and they'd come home with their stories of the kids in Germany who weren't always kind. And they'd tell their story, and, they, and I said, well, that was my, that's my opening mark, right? Well... And they'd stop me right there. You're not going to tell us about Jesus carrying, taking us through all this, are you, Dad? I said, no, dear, I'm not. Although it's true. That's not going to be my starting point. We'll get there. It's just, it's just too far away. When your finances are failing, and you're looking at your bank account, and you're thinking, how are we going to make it ends meet? And somebody comes up to you and says, isn't God good? Well, yeah, he is good, isn't he? But you're not feeling it. You get the cancer diagnosis. Are you feeling it? Child dies. Do you feel it? So you ask the question, so what? 
And we see it from what Paul and Silas and Timothy write. They go right, they go right to our greatest fears. We do have a purpose. This isn't for nothing. And even before we rebelled and we constantly rebelled, God joyfully determined that the Son would come, the firstborn of all creation would come and save his people. And whether it's rejection or fear of rejection or being an outsider looking in, whether it's loneliness or shame or fear of being forgotten, Eden resonates in our hearts. Being driven out of the garden in that primary of all most wonderful relationships being broken into. And we feel it today. But it doesn't have to be that way. We don't have to be alienated from our Creator because we've been ransomed, we've been healed, we've been restored, we've been forgiven. Do you know this? Sometimes we forget it. We forget it a lot. So the second one, second point is how deep the Father's love for us that He sends encouragers by whom he encourages. Verse 3, he reminds us, he says, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and onward. He, remem- he reminds the people in Thessalonica, I haven't forgotten you. Because they're sitting there. They haven't heard anything from him. Has he forgotten us? Has he just taken what we offered and gone on his way and just left us in a heap? Francis Schaeffer said once that the, the, the uh, gospel ministry, uh, we have to be careful. We're not playing a, a psychological game where we're just teaching people philosophy. Because if you do, you're going to take, take them to the point and you're going to destroy them. What we're doing is about the business of eternity and souls. We ought not take this lightly. Talk about following God and giving up everything for the sake of Christ. This is not, this is not a mind game. And he reminds them that they're not forgotten, which I think is one of our great fears. I, I know it's one of the great fears of me, of mine. And many whom I love, I'll put it that way, will sit there and they'll say, we're here in Europe, for instance. Have they forgotten us? They're living their lives. Have they forgotten us? And then we go back for the States for a year. We get to know them again. We spend time with them. We're going to go back to Europe, and they're just going to forget us again. I used to lie awake at night as a teenager. One of my greatest fears was that I would die and just be forgotten. People that's like are not forgotten. He also reminds them that family's praying, that this is family, brothers and sisters. Paul is family with the Thessalonians. He says, we're praying for you. This is not generic. This is not a generic kind of, I'll be praying for you, sending thoughts your way, thinking good thoughts, wishing you the best. This is, I want to let you know what I've been spending time with our Savior and Creator and Ruler of the universe praying about for you. These are the specific things that I've been praying about. We desperately need this. All of us do. We need people to write letters, to send emails, to make phone calls and says, I'm praying for you. And not, and not just, I intend to pray for you or I intended to pray for you and then say, I prayed for you. 
but I am praying for you and make it a point to pray for these people about the specific things that you say you're praying for about. We need it. We ought to be pray, uh, praying people because we have a God who delights in answering prayers. We ought to be a praying people because it reminds us that we're not in control and that he is. We ought to be a praying people because at its most basic level, God commands it. We ought to be a praying people because we only learn how to pray and what to pray when we pray. And it's enormously comforting and encouraging to me to know that family is praying for me. Paul, like I say, Paul asked people to pray. He expected they would pray and he expected he would have courage and wisdom because they prayed. And, and praying is a reminder of what we know. God knows we need reminders. He gives us reminders all over the place. He gives us the Lord's Supper. We need this reminder, a reminder of what Christ has done, what Christ is doing, and what Christ has for us, the great, the great feast that awaits us. We forget. We have baptism, a reminder of what it is to enter into the covenant community of God. We have wedding rings, a reminder that this is a promise that somebody made to me. Get up in the morning, or get, when I send the girls to, to bed at night, I get them up in the morning, we say, I love you. It's not, we, the old story of, uh, you know, why don't you, the husband says, the wife says to the husband, why don't you ever tell me you love me? And he says, well, I told you when we got married, right? It says, if anything changes, I'll let you know. <laughs> we, don't, we don't work that way. We need constant reminders that we're loved. We feel forgotten. We need constant reminders that our God is on his throne. We forget. We need constant reminders that we have value. We forget. We need constant reminders, particularly if we think of ourselves as worthless, that we have value because, uh, because of the cross. And if we think of ourselves too highly, we need that reminder that there was a cross that was necessary. We desperately need reminders. you brothers and sisters reach out and tell people that you're praying for them be concrete oh, even if it's awkward at first we got a wonderful reminder some years back just before covid anything before covid i, I just it's a cutoff mark and, and it's just pre-covid and now today so sometime before covid we got a wonderful reminder and um a uh, a pastor and his wife was sent by his church to come visit us and spend time with us and when Dale and Connie were sitting in our living rooms, we were connected with family. We were suddenly transported right there with all of you. It was a reminder, we're not forgotten. We're being prayed for. Because goodness knows, we certainly don't forget you. This is God who who saves, it's a God who encourages, and then the God's, how deep the Father's love for us that he works and sustains. One of the challenges I have as a pastor is I tend to confuse information with transformation. I know my Bibles, more or less. I know my theology, more or less. And I assume that that means I'm sanctified, and I'm not. 
And I think if I just get more information and get my, my theology, I can articulate it more clearly that somehow that means that I am a more faithful follower of Jesus Christ. And it means nothing of the sort. And so what Paul is doing here is he's encouraging his people who know what they believe and they're transformed by it. So how deep the Father's love for us that he works and he sustains. He says there that he says, we constantly give uh, mentioning to you, uh, verse three, remembering our, before our God and Father, your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. He gives us a faith that works. It's a transforming, lens-altering, life-altering, world-altering, powerful faith. Calvin talks about this work of faith as a, quote, a token or indicator of the power and efficacy of the Holy Spirit. It energizes and it enlivens. It's a God-given, life-giving faith that changes the lens through which you and I view the world. It's a God-giving, God-given life, I'm sorry, God-given, life-giving faith that answers the deep questions of life. Why am I here? Do I have a purpose? And do I have to make it up for myself? And it's a faith that takes hold of my only hope in life and death, that we're not our own, but belong body and soul, both in life and death, to God our Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's, a, and it's a God-given, life-giving faith that sets me free. It's love. It gives us not only a faith, but a love that labors. One commentator puts it this way. He adds labor of love, by which he means, and this is fabulously old written language, that in the cultivation of love, they had grudged no trouble or labor. He's like, nope, we'll do it. As opposed to, oh, brother. And assuredly, as is known by experience, how laborious love is. That age, however, more especially afforded to believers a manifold sphere of labor as if they were, as if they were desirous to discharge the offices of love. The church in Thessalonica was, as he put it, marvelously pressed down. Many were thrown destitute of counsel. Many were tender and weak. And the condition of almost all was involved. Everybody was suffering. But all of these cases of distress and of suffering did not allow love to be inactive. You know this feeling now, many of you. Moms for children, daddies for the little girls, anybody who's ever been in love, anyone for their dearest friends, for family. You'll do, you'll do for them. Are you being transformed so that people say, see how they love one another? See how they labor in love for one another? Or do they say, see how well they live in their little insular bubbles? See how well they know and spout out their theology? Does your relationship with Jesus Christ give you a love that can labor, that can love and labor for family and all those outside these walls? For the sake of Jesus Christ. And he gives us a hope that perseveres. It's a steadfast hope. It's a, it's a, it's a patient bearing up under. Persevering. Because what awaits you makes the current suffering and discomfort pale in comparison. Why are they persevering? 
Is it the hope of eternal life? Is it the in lands, money, relationship, security, or health? It is in Jesus Christ himself. It is in the character of the one who has promised us himself. And by the way, hope, when we sit in a worship service, the worship service is full of hope. It is hope from the moment you walk. Actually, it's the hope as, you walk, as you're going to church, you sit in the church, the invocation the hope, the confident expectation that you, that God is going to meet with you today, that, that as you worship, he is going to take delight in your praise. It's not just wishful thinking. It's the confident expectation that you are meeting with God today. It's a hope in confession. I would argue that one of the most hopeful times of the whole worship service is in the confession of sin. That really depressing moment when everyone they say, examine your heart and think of all the bad things you've done this week. Okay? Why is it so hopeful? Because the expectation is, and it's not to be taken for granted, the expectation is when you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. It is the most hopeful, most glorious moment because you realize the sin that you brought with you, you can unload. There's hope in prayer, hope in giving of the offering, hope in the preaching of the word, hope in the benediction, because you know that the word you've been given, you've been feeding spiritually, and you're going to go out energized out into the world with the full expectation that the Holy Spirit is accompanying you, and he's going to work in power, and he's going to change the lives around you, and he's going to continue to work it and change your life. It's full of hope. And hope equips me to preserve, to persevere through good and terribly hard times. My question for you, brothers and sisters, is do you have that hope? Do you have that confident expectation? Do you believe that? Can you sing, Jesus is all the world to me. I want no better friend. I trust him now. I'll trust him when life's fleeting days shall end. Beautiful life with such a friend Beautiful life that has no end. Eternal life. Eternal joy. He's my friend. Or maybe if you're honest, sometimes you're not sure it's really all worth it. I was talking to an Afghani man. I was, I was teaching a class in, in Munich on uh, singleness. He was a single fellow. about 21 years old. And he comes up afterwards, and I was talking about be, not being unequally yoked and, and what it means to follow Christ in this. And he said, I have a question for you, okay? In my village back at home, you see, he's a refugee. In my village back at home, everybody else my age is married. And my family has picked out a young lady for me. What should I do? I really want to be married. So I said, well, I can't pretend to understand the challenges of what it means to grow up in a culture where everyone is married by 19 and you're a weird, off, oddball if you're not married by the time you're 21. And I'm not expecting you or your family to understand this. But the question you're asking me, is it worth it? Is it worth it to follow Jesus Christ and remain single until or if the Lord should provide someone 
And if he doesn't, is it still worth it? He's like, that's kind of my question. I understand that. I ask that question to myself all the time. I'm lonely. I'm tired. I'm not good at German. Not the way I need to be. And is it worth it? We're sitting up chairs. Some German guy comes up to me with his mask on and says to me, blah, 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 blah about the chairs. And I thought, he's talking to me about chairs. This is great. So I responded back to him very clearly about setting up chairs because he pointed at where we were setting up. I said to him, blah, 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 back. And he looked at me with this very confused look on his face. No, he said, blah, 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 the chairs. So I responded back, blah, blah, blah. He said, don't worry about it. I'll go ask somebody else. <laughs> that, was, that was about two months ago. And I thought to myself, what am I doing here? I can't even have a coherent conversation with somebody about setting up some stupid chairs. And I'm supposed to be talking to them about the deeper things of the gospel. Okay? Is it worth it? So, let me ask you, what do you know? Have the words of the gospel ever grabbed hold of you experientially? Are you the type that sat in the pews for, or chairs for years and thought that your proximity to the church and its culture was sufficient? Do you know the truth? Have you confused information with transformation? Do you know that your relationship with the Creator is broken? Do you know that your Creator has gone through infinite cost to Himself to rescue you from judgment that you deserve and then restore you to a place not just of peace, but family glory? Maybe you think you're not worth it. You have no value and no purpose. The cross, again, says otherwise. Maybe you think you're fantastic. The cross says otherwise. Do you know that your desires for justice, for right, for beauty, for eternity, for love, for permanence, for family can only ultimately be met in Christ? That existential angst that, that no matter how good it is, it's going to end. Go on vacation. You can feel it right away. Monday morning you wake up and you know, oh, Saturday's coming. And you almost can't really quite enjoy the beach. It's, or wherever you're on vacation because it's sitting right there. Those are the echoes of a desire for eternity. John 13, 3, in ending, says Jesus, knowing, Jesus knew something, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he'd come from God and was going back to God. This is what Jesus knew. Sinclair Ferguson, Sinclair Ferguson notes, he says, it doesn't, it doesn't elicit the next response that we might automatically assume. Knowing all these things, he got up and took credit and all the things that belonged to him and all of the universe into his hands and he says, worship me. No, he doesn't do that. Knowing the Father had given all things to his hands. He'd come from God, was going back to God. He rose from supper, and what did he do? He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. 
He didn't exercise all the rights and privileges that were his. Instead, he took on a role of a servant and poured himself out. You and I can only do this in our relationships, in our jobs, in our society, whether it's for the poor or marginalized or the needy, or for our families, which is sometimes the hardest people to do it for. If we embrace the gospel, what do you know? Do you know how deep the Father's love in Jesus Christ is for you? Is it moving from your head down to your heart? Is it sustaining you? Is it transforming you? What are you going to do with that knowledge? Let's pray. Father, how desperately we need to know. We need to know the truth because it drives us. It sustains us. And yet, Lord, help us not simply to know the truth, but by the power of your Holy Spirit, apply it to our lives. Transform us, I pray. Make people who love the family and who love the family for your sake, that you may be glorified in all that we do for the sake of the kingdom and the world. These things we pray in our dear Savior, Jesus Christ's name. Amen.